Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's mid-January 2024, and although it might sound a little like I've slipped through a portal into another universe... I'm actually at the British Library. Eleanor and I have battled near zero temperatures, ice and snow to come up to the British Library's exhibition Fantasy Realms of Imagination. We've been poring over maps of imagined places, looking at handwritten notes written by J.R.R. Tolkien, Ursula Le Guin and Percy Bysshe Shelley, and gazing agog at artwork by the likes of Arthur Rackham. Aubrey Beardsley, Ivan Bibelin, and Gustave Doré. About ten feet away from me in either direction, there are the actual original manuscripts of Beowulf and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We have, as I'm sure you can imagine, been freaking out. We've come to London to look at something else, too, something very special related to Rutland, the county we're going to be talking about today. But while we're here, let's take a moment to think about what fantasy is. People are quick to draw a line between literature and history, but the closer you look, then the fuzzier that line becomes. Likewise, the gap between the impossible and the definite may at first seem painfully distant, but blink and look again, and that yawning chasm might just seem near enough to leap across, perhaps with a long enough run-up, what people sometimes call a leap of faith. After all, what is the Epic of Gilgamesh? How about Ovid's Metamorphosis, or the Tales of King Arthur, or the Thousand and One Nights? Are these texts fantastical, or are they real? What is realness, and can we consider a given thing to be more or less true because it was imagined? How about this? Do we believe in things only because there's evidence to prove they happened? Of course we don't. We as creatures take chances, do things because we hope and imagine, take risks and place our trust 
in the wonder of possibility. So, with this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. Hello, and we should start the episode in the customary way, wishing a very warm welcome to our newest supporters on Patreon, Lowry, Alex and Philippa. All hail Lowry, King of Patreon. All hail Alex, King of Patreon. All hail Philippa, King of Patreon. Thank you so much to the three of you for signing up. Yes. And if you would like to support the podcast and aren't currently a member, please consider joining our Conspiracy of Ravens at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Yes, yes. Last week we published our Patreon exclusive episode for January, which is all about the festival of Imolk. It's a great listen, even if we say so ourselves, Mm -hmm. talking all about the history of the pagan festival of Imolk, as well as Roman traditions around February and Lupercal. There's bits of Viking lore in there, tons about the Celtic goddess Bridget, and Martin wrote a lovely story. Mm. Thank you very much to Libby, Anya, and everyone on Patreon who's been so kind about it and made such lovely comments. Of course, Patreon supporters get access to monthly exclusive episodes like this one, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, all of our episodes ad-free, Monday episodes early, the monthly Three Ravens newsletter full of folk customs, tarot spreads, magic spells, cultural recommendations and more, plus our stories as text versions. It's quite a lot. There is. And please, everyone, send us your thoughts about our Three Ravens Film Club movie for January 1995, Cemetery Man. Mm. By Monday the 22nd, please, for inclusion in that episode. Yes, please. Anyhow, for all sorts of Patreon bonus goodies, do sign up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast and email us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. And as for emails, thank you to those of you who've already sent through entries to our thousand word flash fiction contest there's still six weeks to go to get your entries in and we're looking for a thousand words of folkloric fiction written by you which we'll read out in a special episode after series three is over likewise we're always keen to hear your local folklore tell us about the gribbly things that live in the woods at the edge of your town the ghosts you know about the superstitions you keep to anything curious and strange please send those things through to us too for inclusion in our third listener episode which will also come out after series We'll talk more about correspondence at the end of the episode, including some really interesting and lovely messages we've received. Mm -hmm. But as Martin says, email those flash fiction entries or interesting folkloric tidbits through to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. Right then, let's talk about today's weird festival. And it is... Chailwolf's Day. Chailwolf, I'm guessing, is an Anglo-Saxon name. Yes, correct. And how do we spell it? C-E-O-L 
W-U-L-F. It means the ship of the wolf, which makes absolutely no sense at all. No, waterborne wolf. Yes, indeed. Hmm. But we do actually know a bit about Saint Chailwolf because he was the chap to whom the Venerable Bede dedicated his seminal work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Ah, yes, the Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum. Probably the most important original reference book for Anglo-Saxon history. Mm. Although not perhaps the most accurate. No, not least if you're interested in mercy. Yeah, so the Venerable Bede was from Northumbria, meaning he didn't like the Mercians. So he basically just decided to write a lot of Mercia's doings out of the history of England. And likewise suggested most things Northumbrian kings did were particularly amazing. Like, for example, the Northumbrian invasion and apparent defeat of all Ireland, which he assures us was an act of God. <laughs> Still, Bede did come up with the term BC, literally inventing that as a term to date events before Christ, and his use of Anno Domini, dating events from the birth of Christ, was so influential that essentially the rest of Europe chose to adopt it as a system. So it's a pretty important book. It is. And dedicated to Chelwolf. Why, might we ask, did he dedicate it to him specifically? Well, Chailwolf, who obviously later became a saint, was an 8th century king of Northumbria ah. who jacked kinging in completely to become a monk on the Holy Isle of Lindisfarne. Bede was notably one of his courtiers and advisers, and Bede basically thought Chailwolf was a pretty rubbish king, <laughs> so encouraged him to abdicate in favour of his cousin Egbert, who was more interested in chopping people up with swords, including, you know, those pesky Picts to the north and, of course, those ghastly Mercians to the south. Oh, I see. So Bede was basically all about the glory of Northumbria yep. and didn't think Chelwolf had what it takes? Yeah, there are actually a series of veiled criticisms of weak kings becoming monks threaded through the ecclesiastical history of the English people. Bede was evidently a bit sarcastic. And do we know how we celebrate St. Chelwolf's Day? We do not. We do know that his head is buried alongside St. Cuthbert at Durham Cathedral. And in lieu of anything else, I would suggest people pick up and read a bit of Bede's ecclesiastical history. There are loads of illuminated manuscript examples of the text available to read and admire, frankly, through the British Library's website. Sounds excellent. And so shall we pull the candy criers out of their life of retirement in a house of holy worship and have them read? Bring us into Rutland? Most definitely. Now, enough of this. Stop making homebrew and exacting tides. You're not monks. And what have you done to your hair? Oh, Rutlandshire, or Rutland as it's more commonly known, is located in England's East Midlands. It's bordered by Leicestershire to the north and west, Northamptonshire to the south, and Lincolnshire to the north and east. As always, there's a map showing its precise location, along with expanded information about the places we're talking about in this episode, on the blog at Three Ravens Podcast. I have a slight advantage here in that I've been to Rutland. Well, I never have. But, of course, 
like just about all the places we talk about on the podcast, I would really like to go there. Not least so I could say that I have visited England's smallest historic county. And to be clear, how small is Rutland? Well, it's just 18 miles wide and 17 miles long. So roughly 147 square miles. That's 382 square kilometres in new money. And by comparison, if you recall, I spoke about Yorkshire, England's largest county in series two. I remember very well. And Yorkshire is a Enormous, isn't it? Yeah. Yorkshire is over 9,300 square miles, so around 15,000 square kilometres, meaning you could fit Rutland into Yorkshire over 60 times and still have room to swing several werewolves. When you put it like that, it's a bit bananas, isn't it? Yeah. 18 miles across. <laughs> I mean, it's tiny. It is pretty insane how small it is. But the people of Rutland are proud of its smallness. Indeed, the county motto is Latin, multum in parvo, which means much in little. Well, that's adorable. Small is beautiful. (laughs) And so you mentioned it's bordered by Leicestershire, Mm. Northamptonshire and Lincolnshire. So has Rutland always been a county in its own right or was it carved out later? It was carved out later, but still quite a long time ago. The county's boundaries were officially established in 1179, so during the 12th century. And until that point, Rutland was basically considered part of Nottinghamshire. So the Doomsday Book, for example, and right through the period when the Danegeld was being collected, Rutland was just a region of Nottinghamshire. Okay, so 1179, that's Mm. around what... Around the death of Thomas Beckett. Yeah, it? so as discussed in our Kent episode, Beckett was murdered in 1170. Henry II was on the throne at the time, and at the point it was officially designated a county, Rutland was basically a hunting ground. So why, without wanting to be rude here, but why was Rutland made a county? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but before it was made a county, there were various honours attached to Rutland, including the Sheriff of Rutland, as appointed by Henry I. And Henry I, if you remember, was the son of William the Conqueror, who, whoops, just happened to become king after, oh dear, never mind, an arrow went astray, killing his brother, the very killable William Rufus. Oh yes, William Rufus, (laughs) the king who was shot because his friends mistook him for a squirrel. Yeah, a squirrel or a red deer. I mean, they didn't even get their story straight about why they shot him. Anyway, so after Henry I came to the throne, to keep favour with people, he gave out a load of titles and honours, one of them being Sheriff of Rutland. And that went to a powerful Norman family just before we got, imagine a guitar solo here, the anarchy. Yes, now this is a part of English history we haven't spoken much about on Three Ravens. Well, this is our moment, and the anarchy was a pretty interesting moment in English history because lasting from 1138 to 1153, England had a pretty intense civil war, all brought about by a crisis of succession. Yeah, brought about because William Adeline, the only son of Henry I, died in a shipping disaster. Yeah, precisely. And with no son to inherit his title, Henry I decreed that the crown should pass to his daughter, Matilda. Only the rest of the nobility were not wholly convinced that a person called Matilda should be king. They were not, no. And so you get two factions, those who supported King Matilda, including notably Robert Fitzroy, Earl of Gloucester, who was one of Henry I's illegitimate children, and those who supported Henry I's nephew, Stephen of Blois, 
son of Henry of Blois, the powerful Bishop of Winchester. Again, like with William Rufus, we've spoken a bit about Henry of Blois in our Hampshire episode. Yes. A fascinating bloke. Indeed. Visit Winchester Cathedral, everyone. It's amazing and full of the Blois. Anyway, after the death of Henry I, you had this extended period of castle warfare. King Matilda's faction held the southwest of England, King Stephen's faction held the southeast, and you had knights thundering about all over the place, beating seven shades of snot out of one another, catapults firing, trebuchets also firing, cauldrons of burning oil, the whole nine yards. And quite ridiculous moments too. Mm. For example, at one point, King Matilda's forces managed to capture King Stephen, only when she rode to London to claim the throne, the city rebelled against her and chased her away. Yeah, that followed the Battle of Lincoln. Meanwhile, Robert of Gloucester was also captured in the rout of Winchester, so eventually King Matilda agreed to a prisoner exchange, swapping King Stephen for Robert. I think she should have just beheaded Stephen. It would have ended the debate, wouldn't it? It would have, but she didn't want to have Robert beheaded in turn. He was, after all, her half-brother. He was, but I mean, victory or your (laughs) half-brother. I know what I'd choose. (laughs) And remember, you know, we're calling her King Matilda here, but she also styles herself as Empress Matilda. (laughs) So she was a woman clearly dedicated to victory. Mm. And then as soon as Stephen was freed, you get the Battle of Oxford, where King Matilda ends up under siege herself. Yeah, she does. And this is one of those very beautiful, almost mythical moments in English history, because while King Matilda was under siege in Oxford Castle, surrounded by King Stephen's army of knights and nobles, right in the depths of winter, meaning the ground was covered in snow, King Matilda very famously snuck out of the castle, taking basically nothing with her. The legend goes that she was barely even wearing clothes, and that she then walked down the frozen River Thames through the enemy ranks, escaping to safety. And though it sounds like a folktale, it did actually happen, didn't it? It really did. And eventually she fled to Normandy and left her son, Henry, to lead the war effort. And the reason this is relevant to Rutland is King Stephen's forces absolutely devastated the forests and woodlands of Rutland during this time, cutting the whole thing down and digging loads of quarries. Oh, okay. And so from that, I'm guessing they built weapons and things. Yeah, they burned the wood to make charcoal to run forges and dug pits to mine iron ore. But then eventually, at the end of the anarchy, because neither side could actually make a decisive victory, King Stephen made a pact with King Matilda's son, Henry, whereby King Stephen would rule until he died, then Henry would inherit the throne. And so Henry eventually became Henry II, the self-same Henry II who killed Thomas Becket. Exactly right. And Henry II was not a very secure king. As you might guess, what with his knights chopping up the Archbishop of Canterbury in a cathedral? Well, quite. He had, for example, the Great Revolt in 1173, where his own sons rose up against him. And his empire was vast, including Normandy, Anjou and Aquitaine, parts of Brittany, parts of Ireland. He had a huge area to rule, bits of which just kept rebelling a bit like a game of whack-a-mole. And so to hold power, Henry II had to appoint people loyal to him to rule his various regions. That only makes sense. Sort of how patronage works, isn't it? Exactly, which is why Henry II first replanted the Forest of Rutland, which was eventually called Leefield. The village of Leefield still exists, by the way. Population of 
10 people. 10 people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Henry II also carved out the county of Rutland to give initially to his ally, Walklin de Ferres, his name literally meaning Walklin the Smith or Walklin the Ironworker. Walklin had been on crusade with Henry II's son, Richard, the same Richard who would later become Richard I, a.k.a. Richard Lionheart, so was seen as a safe pair of hands. Well, that's very interesting. And not a born nobleman. No, a practical human being. And so Walklin the Smith built Oakham Castle in one of the only two towns in Rutland, Oakham, and you can still visit the Grade 1 listed Norman Castle of Oakham to this day. As built by Walkland. Mostly, although it was and is more of a fortified manor house, so it has a curtain wall and some lovely buildings, including the county courts as part of the complex, but it isn't perhaps a traditional castle to look at. It does, however, have a whacking great collection of ancient horseshoes, which is fun. How ancient? I mean, how many horseshoes and how far back do they go? Well, there are 230 historic horseshoes there. Wow. They're on display across the walls of the Great Hall and the oldest dates from 1470. They're all there because since Walklin de Ferrer's time, it became traditional for any king or bishop visiting the castle to gift a horseshoe to the Earl of Rutland. The 1470 horseshoe was gifted by Edward IV. And then when Walklin died... Edward of Norwich, the son of the Duke of York and grandson of Edward III, was made Earl of Rutland and continued the tradition. Presumably because Edward of Norwich was eventually going to become the Duke of York. Yeah, exactly. So Henry II, again, gave him a title as a kind of down payment on Edward's future fealty, shoring up his own power. Very interesting. Mm. But perhaps more interesting to me is the idea that because Walklin was famous as a blacksmith, you have this enduring tradition that lasts for, what, 800 years? Yeah, over 800 years. And okay. Oakham Castle is open to visitors. It has tons of fascinating sculptures and artwork from across those eight centuries of history and earlier, and is said to be the finest example of surviving Norman architecture anywhere in England. And did Oakham Castle survive so unscathed because Rutland was basically not seen as terribly strategically important? Essentially... Yes. The county has never been rich. Its economy has almost always been agricultural. It's a low-lying county with rolling hills. And during the early modern period, it made quite a lot of its income from wool. But otherwise, the county was known for farming and a little bit for mining and limestone quarries. In fact, the ironstone mined in Rutland was used right up until the quarries closed in the 1960s. Okay, well, if there's ironstone in the ground thereabouts, we can probably presume that the Romans were interested in Rutland, mm. as where there's iron ore, there's usually Romans. Yeah, correct. And quite a few Roman finds have been made in Rutland. For example, in 2021, a massive Roman villa was discovered in a farmer's field between the villages of Ketton and Luffenham. I'll put a video up about it on the blog and some pictures on social media. But in this case, a local farmer's son called Jim Irvin was taking a walk during lockdown, saw some interesting stones and pottery shards in the earth. And a year later, the University of Leicester sent a team to unearth this massive villa, including a whacking 11 by 7 meter mosaic showing panels with several moments from Homer's Iliad. Wow, that's wonderful. Mm. And do we know from when the mosaic dates? Roughly the 3rd century AD. And this is particularly interesting because there was a Roman town in Rutland on what was once Ermine Street between Leicester, or Ratai, as the Romans called it, and Lincoln, or Lindum, as it was known. This town, Great Casterston, is still there. It enjoyed some excavations in the 1950s 
Hercules, revealing another massive Roman villa that archaeologists have gone back to several times. In fact, also in 2021, a 1,600-year-old body was discovered in a back garden in Great Casterton, this body having belonged to a Roman slave who was shackled with iron fetters before he was buried. Whoa. Mm. I mean, I've never heard of a shackled Roman slave having been found before. That's quite unusual, isn't it? Very. It is literally the only example of a slave being shackled before burial ever found in Britain. So super interesting. And likewise, Oakham has been investigated several times from the 1950s onwards because the castle built by Walt Clinder Ferres was found to contain some Roman sculptures and Roman masonry that had been reused. And a discovery from that dig led us to the British Museum last week, where we saw a copper alloy Roman statue as found in the grounds of Oakham Castle. This was a pretty amazing thing to find. Mm. The statue's thought to date from about 46 AD and to have come from Gaul, so northern France. Again, we'll put pictures of the statue and us with it at the British Museum on social media and the blog. But one of the most interesting things about the statue is nobody knows which god it actually represents. No, and this is because he's lost his arms and whatever he was holding along the way. Very careless. Well, he is almost 2,000 years old, so it's understandable he's become a bit forgetful. Yeah, he can be forgiven. Still, he has a lovely big beard and sandals on his feet. He could be Zeus, could be Poseidon, could be Hades, possibly. But either way, he was found by an English school teacher called John Barber, who basically basically drafted a load of school children from Oakham School into running this massive dig Amazing. in the 1950s. The site was then re-excavated by Time Team in 2015. Shout out to Tony Robinson. And if you'd like to have us on the cunning cast, Tony, we are available. Yes. I would like that very much. Yeah, we, we really would. <laughs> also, teachers, just to say, Martin and I have both done some work in schools. Mm. Um, we know what it's like. Can you imagine, A, how impossible it would be today to get a bunch of your students to just bunk off lessons and engage in an archaeological day? Yeah, it would be impossible. It would. (laughs) And also, B... How amazing would that be from an educational perspective Mm. to be invited to dig out an ancient castle and discover Roman remains? I would have been so happy to have been allowed to do that when I was a child. Oh, for sure. Especially if it meant I missed maths lessons and PE lessons and French lessons. I mean, looking back, school was pretty rubbish, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's only getting worse for most children. Mm. Still, aside from Roman artefacts and sculptures, do we have any other interesting archaeological finds from Rutland. Oh, we do. And these are connected to probably the most famous feature of Rutland as a whole, and that's Rutland Water. Yes. Now, Rutland Water is very famous. I think I'm right in saying it's the largest reservoir in England. It is. Originally, it was called the Empingham Reservoir, and it was built in 1975 by damming the Gouache Valley. It's a nature reserve and water sports centre and hosts the British Bird Watching Fair every August. Yes, the twitcher in me knows that Rutland Water is famous for ospreys as well as loads of other amazing birds like mm. lapwings, coots, golden eyes, cormorants, grebes. I mean, I had a wonderful time at bird watching around the banks of Rutland Water when I visited. But I've got to say, I didn't realise it was so modern. Yeah. 1975 seems very late. I had no idea either because it's so famous and associated with Rutland. I mean, the county is not generally famous for much else, but as I said, 
two amazing discoveries were made at Rutland Water, one from just before the reservoir was flooded, one much more recently. Well, that sounds fun. So what happened just before they flooded it? Well, this is such a good story. Basically, as soon as it was announced that the whole area was going to be flooded, archaeologists from around the area, particularly teams made up almost entirely of amateurs, as organised by Rutland County Museum and Nottingham University, raced to see what they could find there. And they found some incredible stuff. Like what? Well, and this was literally a race against time. There are some brilliant photos of mothers with prams with babies in them and children and all sorts of people digging and excavating. But basically, in the days leading up to the flooding of the reservoir, they found a massive Anglo-Saxon burial ground. What? (laughs) Yep, they unearthed eight Anglo-Saxon warriors still wearing their helmets with the remains of their shields, a cruciform Saxon brooch, over 150 skeletons, including a mother holding her baby, wearing a necklace made of an ammonite. You're joking. Plus spears, drinking vessels, the only wooden Roman sandal ever found in England. They thought they'd found another Roman villa as well, but... Well, the government of the time had spent £25 million on the engineering for Rutland Water. That's £25 million in 1970s money, so almost a quarter of a billion if adjusted for inflation. So it didn't matter what was found, the flooding went ahead, meaning whatever else is down there will probably never know. Wow, that is such a cool story. Mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon burial ground yeah. under this reservoir. Rutland, who knew? It's great, isn't it? And two of the skeletons from that dig are currently on display at the Rutland Water Visitor Centre right next to the car park. Whoa. <laughs> and you mentioned a second find there. Yeah, in February 2021, one of the lagoons in Rutland Water was drained for landscaping. And as the water receded, they revealed the enormous skeleton of an ichthyosaurus. Ah, yes, the ichthyosaurus, the prehistoric giant murder dolphin. Yeah, also known as the sea dragon, the ichthyosaurus found in Rutland was the biggest ichthyosaurus ever found at over 10 metres long. The skeleton was complete and... 250 million years old. That's insane. Yeah. 250 million years old. Mm-hmm. Blimey. So what happened to this huge dinosaur skeleton? Can we go and see it somewhere? Uh, no, because as everyone in England has probably noticed, there's basically no funding around for cool things like archaeology and the arts and museums. So at present, the largest and most complete ichthyosaur skeleton ever found is currently housed in an industrial unit in Shropshire, looked after by a natural history conservationist called Nigel Larkin. What? <laughs> so, hold on. Yeah. This huge dinosaur is just... In a warehouse. Yep, just in a warehouse. But there you go, pretty interesting by anyone's measure. Amazing and also shocking. (laughs) I mean, I want to go to Nigel's warehouse for tea and cake and to look at his ichthyosaurus. Well, you can at least go and see a different Rutland dinosaur that's readily on public display. I can? Oh, yeah. This one's literally known as the Rutland dinosaur. It's a cetiosaurus and even bigger than the ichthyosaur. It is, in fact, the most complete sauropod fossil. So that's the long-necked kind of dinosaur like the Brachiosaurus, the Diplodocus and the Brontosaurus. And this one was found in one of those quarries near Great Casterton in 1968. Oh boy. Yeah, it's one of the most complete specimens of any dinosaur, let alone just a sauropod, ever found in the United Kingdom. It's 15 metres or 49 feet long and on display at the Leicester Museum and Art Gallery. 
my goodness. <laughs> I, I can't believe it's such dinosaur country. Yeah. Well, we have to go and see the Rutland dinosaur. That's so interesting. Good, yeah. In fact, for such a small county, it's kind of amazing the amount of Rutland-related history you've been able to dig up. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, I'm as surprised as anyone, to be honest. Considering the size of Rutland, I was really worried about having enough to say to fill this episode, but there's plenty. So while Rutland seems to have had very limited significance in the Neolithic and Mesolithic periods, a few axe heads have been found, but not much else. It does have this Roman history, plus evidently some Anglo-Saxon heritage. It was at the time part of Mercia. And uh, The area is mentioned in a couple of Anglo-Saxon dowries as Rutland, but then its importance kind of faded during the medieval era, save for in the 13th or 14th centuries, you get some churches built, such as the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Ketton, St. Peter's Church in Empingham, All Saints Church in Oakham, and the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul in Uppingham, with Uppingham being the only other town in Rutland. Well, firstly, 13th and 14th centuries suggest those churches are quite old, Mm. built, I'm presuming, using that wool money you were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly right. Secondly, Uppingham is slightly famous, isn't it, as it's home to Uppingham School? Yeah, founded around that same time in 1584. So it was founded as an arms house, although, of course, it's been significantly expanded since then, particularly during the Victorian era. Still, Uppingham School is one of those slightly Hogwartsy looking English boarding schools. But also, just to say, almost all of Rutland's churches experienced some rather heavy handed modernisation by the Victorians. So, again, they're not quite as pretty as some 13th and 14th century buildings we've mentioned on past episodes. Those pesky Victorians. Mm. I mean, it was, of course, important to go in and preserve a lot of the ancient churches they worked on but still some of the additions they made are well they're not exactly what you might call tasteful no not subtle let's say and then the only other important thing to say about rutland's history really is that since the 17th century it has also been home to the cottesmore hunt a traditional fox hunt which of course is some source of controversy as mentioned in our leicestershire episode fox hunting is banned in england it sure is but somehow the rich do find their workarounds they do and the cottesmore hunt still operates although broadly it's said within the law Nonetheless, it's still a magnet for anti-hunt protesters who regularly capture pretty uncomfortable stuff on their mobile phone cameras. In 2021, for example, there was a scandal where a rider was seen punching their pony in the face. I remember that. It made the news. Yeah, it did make the news. And in 2022 and 2023, riders have ridden into protesters, some even being charged with grievous bodily harm and wounding with intent. So, not great. No, that's awful. Yeah, lots of grim stuff on YouTube if you want to get really angry. And sitting behind all this is the Duke of Rutland, over whose land the Cottesmore Hunt roams, galloping from Langham in Rutland to Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire and into Lincolnshire. In fact, the peerage of Rutland, as established in the 12th century, continues today. The current Duke of Rutland owns Beaver Castle, which we also mentioned in our recent Leicestershire episode, as well as Haddon Hall in Derbyshire, which I'll talk more about in our episode coming the week after next. Wow, okay, so lots of history in Rutland. Mm. So how about folklore? Is there much to say? Again, it's tiny. There can't be much, can there? Well, there's a surprising amount. For example, at the edge of the village of Wing, near Oakham, 
there's a medieval labyrinth. Excuse me? Yeah, I mean, it isn't enormous. It's only 14 metres across, but it's cut into the ground and it is a labyrinth. Relative in scale to the Rutland. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so no Guillermo del Toro fawns emerging from it? Not that we know of. There's a few theories about it, primarily to do with apotropaic magic and fertility rites. In particular, it's said that there was once a ritual penitence that stopped during the early 1800s, where people would crawl on hands and knees through the wing labyrinth, and that if they could reach the centre without standing up, then they would be granted forgiveness for their sins and good luck in things like having children and so on. Well, that's very strange. It is, isn't it? But apparently it's not unique. There are said to be seven such surviving medieval labyrinths in England. Also at wing, interestingly, we have the very widely reported accounts of Amelia Woodcock, the wise woman of wing. Was this fantastically alliterative woman a witch? She blimmin' well was. I mean, Empingham Heath, as it's now known, was once called Witchley Heath and then Witches Heath on some maps. That's between Normanton, Empingham and Ketton. But apparently that's all just a spelling mistake. Uh-huh, good work, sisters. We've fooled them once again. Whereas Amelia Woodcock, she was the real deal. Born in 1816 as Amelia Dexter, she was illiterate and from a family of five, but she was a person overflowing with hedge wisdom, so much so that people came from far and wide to visit her to receive cures, sometimes over 150 people in a week. She was a busy lady, and 1816 is quite late. Yep, in 1842, she married Matthew Woodcock, who lived with her at Wing. Like most witches, she refused payment in coin, saying, I received the gift of cure from God, and I do not barter God's gifts. Good on you, Amelia. Yeah, go, Amelia. And we know all this, by the way, because the Stamford Mercury newspaper sent correspondents out to see her three times, two in 1852, one in 1854. They witnessed her at work, interviewed two people who said she'd cured them of cancer and these reporters saw the queues of people coming to see her she was apparently so busy that the small cottage at wing known as city yard became absolutely overrun how cool and what with the newspaper coverage she became even more famous so she and her husband concluded the only thing they could do was move house so they did to oakham in 1857 and she lived there until 1863 when she sadly died aged only 47 her grave still stands in hambleton churchyard and can be visited to this day so wait she wasn't arrested or lynched like Nothing bad happened to Amelia? Yeah, she died young, but apparently of natural causes. The Stamford Mercury wrote her a very nice obituary. It's just a rare example of a witch doing good works and having a nice life. Well, that's a nice change. Yeah. And well done, Amelia Woodcock. Talking of perhaps less fortunate stories. How did I sense that was coming? Exton Hall in Rutland was rebuilt in 1810, but the hall that once stood there claimed to be the place where the story of the mistletoe bow originated. And how strong is this claim? Because about a dozen counties claim to be where the mistletoe bow or mistletoe bride story came from. Yeah, Rutland's claim is not strong. I refer listeners back to our Oxfordshire episode for more on the topic. But in the Rutland legend, the supposed victim was a woman called Catherine Knoll, who only died in 1830. So sorry, Rutland. Minster Lovell Hall still claims the prize. The evidence there is older and all other claimants, well... Come at me, bro. Come at me. Poor old Lord Lovell, though. So sad. Yeah. Here's a weird one. Also from Oakham, the legend of, and in fact, the true story of, 
Lord Minimus. Lord Minimus. Mm-hmm. Minimus, of course, means small. Yep. So, uh, are we talking about a to scale very small lord here? Yeah, we are indeed a very small man <laughs> from a very small county. He was also known quite offensively as the Queen's Dwarf. Born Geoffrey Hudson in 1619 in Oakham, he came from a poor family, all of normal size. It's worth saying, but Geoffrey had some kind of growth disorder, and aged eight years old, had grown to only. 18 inches tall, so about 45 centimetres. That really is very small. It is indeed. Yet it's said that he grew entirely in proportion, so was unlikely to be a sufferer of PSS or DSS, which are the causes recognised today as restricted growth disorder. It's all a bit of a mystery as to why he was so small. But still, at the age of eight, he was seen by Charles I's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. Oh, God. <laughs> Nothing good ever comes from being noticed by the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> no, no, indeed. So the Duke of Buckingham buys Geoffrey and takes him to court where... OK, remember in our Four Collie Birds episode when we talked about entremets? Yeah, the tradition where people would bake pies or pastries and put living things inside them, like birds, for example, yeah. so that when... Oh, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, so... When the pies were cut, out would come the surprise. Four and twenty blackbird style. Yeah, so Buckingham presented just such a pie to Henrietta Maria of France, the new wife of Charles I, and the new Queen of England cut into the pie, at which point out popped poor old Geoffrey <laughs> Hudson, dressed in a miniature suit of armour. Oh no, this is terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice for Geoffrey for a little while after that, because he's knighted Lord Minimus and lives in absolute luxury. There are three surviving portraits of him. He had some very nice clothes made for him. He lived at Denmark House. He received an education and grew up to be pretty much constantly by Henrietta Maria's side. What? So she just had Lord Minimus with her all the time? Yeah, which led to some scandalous poetry being written about them. I mean, Henrietta Maria actually had three other servants with recognisable dwarfism, including a footman and a female servant, but Geoffrey was her favourite, and he learned to ride horses and shoot pistols, was known for his quick wit and intelligence. But even as time went on, he didn't grow much beyond 19 inches. This is wild and awful and also really interesting. <laughs> well, it gets even more interesting because when the Civil War broke out, Geoffrey was made a captain of the horse. What? No. <laughs> yeah. And then he engaged in combat in the Civil War, in command of his own cavalry troop. Then, when the war looked like it was going badly, Henrietta Maria fled to France, taking Lord Minimus with her. Only once there, Lord Minimus was insulted by a courtier who he challenged to a duel. No, Geoffrey, your life may be a wild adventure, but you need to be careful. Well, Geoffrey was, all told, a crack shot, and so he put a bullet right between the eyes of his opponent. Not the knees. Nope. Between the eyes only, alas, dueling was against the law in France, punishable by death. Oh, goodness me. Yep. So, old Lord Minimus fled France after an intercession by Henrietta Maria. Only, on his way back to England, he was only blimmin' well kidnapped. And by, I'm not joking here, Barbary pirates. This cannot be real. (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) One being... Why isn't there a film of this man's life? Yeah, it's bananas, isn't it? Because then, for 25 years, he served as a slave in Tunisia, 
all until the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. At that point, Charles II set about bulk buying English slaves who'd been taken hostage during the war years. And when Geoffrey returned to England, Henrietta Maria was actually still alive, but... She refused to be reunited with Lord Minimus. She wouldn't see him. Come on, Henrietta Maria. What a jerk. Oh, no. The guy was her friend for years and had been a pirate slave for a quarter of a century. I know, she was a jerk. Not least because after being back in England for only a few months, Geoffrey was then arrested yeah, for being a Catholic and he was jailed for four years. Then, after his release, he returned to Oakham with a pension from Charles II, living for just another two years before dying at the ripe old age of 63. What a life. Yeah, what a life. Alas, Lord Minimus's grave was unmarked, so we don't know where he's buried, but he was a legitimate Rutland person and, in my mind, a folk hero who far more people need to know about. It's bonkers. What a great story. It's amazing, isn't it? Also, in terms of shooting people, last week you were talking about Dick Turpin. I was, and I failed to mention that Dick Turpin was actually born in Essex. Yes. So thank you very much to Hedging Remedies, who messaged us to say so. But thank you very much, and apologies for that, well, should have mentioned. <laughs> so on what used to be called the Great North Road, which people now call the A1, which is a far inferior name by anyone's measure. Yeah, why would you give that up? I know, right? Anyway, on the Great North Road, there used to be a pub called the Ram Jam Inn. Alas, it closed in 2015 and was demolished in 2022, but it was originally known as the Winchelsea Arms and dated from at least the 18th century, and it was renamed because of a very funny, rather silly story to do with Dick Turpin. Go on. Okay, so in the 1730s, when he was still very much on the loose, Dick Turpin stayed at the Winchelsea Arms. All told, he had a lovely night's sleep, super meal, all the trimmings, and come morning, before he paid his bill, he said to the landlady, Mrs Spring, Oh, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm doing an Essex accent. I, I hope you've noticed. Oh, uh, yeah. So he says, Oh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a quick one easy way to turn dark ale into light ale, which, if you want to save a bit of money, you could deploy here and I'll teach you how. I feel like this isn't going to go terribly well for Mrs Spring. Well, you might be right. So down they head to the cellar where Dick Turpin takes out his dagger and sets about boring a hole into the middle of the barrel of dark ale. Ale starts pouring pouring out money literally spattering onto the floor so dick turpin says oh mrs spring ram your thumb in there while i make the second hole this she does with dick then boring a second hole in the bottom of the barrel he then says ah mrs spring jam a finger in there and i'll go find some style pegs to block up these holes this mrs spring does and with her left thumb rammed into the top hole and a finger from her right hand rammed into the bottom hole dick goes upstairs swipes mrs spring's valuables and the pub's recent takings then hops on his horse black bess out in the stable yard and scarpers. Oh, Mrs. Spring, that really <laughs> is deeply unfortunate, isn't it? It is. But to sort of own her embarrassment, she renamed the coaching house the Ram Jam Inn. And what with the associated story, it proved to be a very popular coaching house right the way through to the late 19th century. <laughs> well, fair play to her. If you've been so badly swindled, you might as well use it for marketing purposes. Yeah, quite. Now, my story today is a very wholesome ghost story, and I'll get to it in just a minute. But before I do... Would you like some additional spooks and spectres? Yes, please. Okay, well, Rye Hall in Rutland was the one-time home of St. 
Tibber. And Tibber, gosh, we must have mentioned her in what episode one or two? Yeah, certainly early on. Niece of Pender of Mercia, indeed, and buried at Peterborough Cathedral. And just outside Ryehall is a hamlet called Belmsthorpe, which used to flood all the time. There was for a while a church there, maybe even a priory. It's recorded in the 17th century, but by 1811, it had disappeared. Disappeared. Yep, vanished. Nobody really knows how or why, but the theory goes that the pub, the Bluebell Inn, was built on or near the site. Furthermore, to this day, it's said that a smell of incense regularly wafts into Belmsthorpe and the pub, and that a hunched figure, thought to be a monk, floats through the pub and towards the nearby well before vanishing into thin air. That's freaky, and I like it. A disappearing priory and a ghost is a double whammy. Elsewhere, in 1896, in the village of Edith Weston, at what is now the southern edge of Rutland Water, there was also a very well-recorded poltergeist case. When you say well-recorded, how well-recorded? Well, again, newspaper reporters were dispatched. Whether we can trust them is a whole other thing, but... At Edith Weston Hall, while engaging in home improvements, George Braithwaite started experiencing knocking day and night throughout his large country house. All sorts of people came and witnessed these knocks, which seemed to come from all areas of the house, at one point from within a newly varnished door, which nobody could explain. I'm guessing there were no marks on the varnish. No, the varnish was still wet. The papers came, they bore witness to it, and then, not long afterwards, Braithwaite Died. His son then sold the house in 1902, but the new owners couldn't live there because it was so haunted. So again, they sold it by auction and it was sold again in 1913 and then mysteriously burned down in 1920. Oh, so is the idea that the poltergeist never left? I guess so. But even then, the ruined house continued to change hands over and over again, right up until 1954 when it was ultimately demolished. Well, if it was really haunted, yeah. it must have been really, really haunted, because <laughs> yeah. that's about 50 years of haunting. Yes, a persistent poltergeist. And here's one last one. At St Andrew's Church, Stoke Dry, there are said to be two ghosts. Incidentally, the chapel and north wall of the chancel at St Andrew's is amazing. It's got Norman stonework with some pretty cool carvings. Again, we'll put some pictures on the blog. But the first ghost there is said to date from 1606 and belonged to Sir Everard Digby. I know that name. Why do I know that name? Well, he was one of the gunpowder plotters. Oh, right. And that makes sense because as discussed in our Northamptonshire episode, this whole area was gunpowder plot country. Yeah, my ancestors and their friends getting into trouble. And Sir Everard Digby's family owned the manor of Stoke Dry and St Andrew's Church. So after he was hanged, drawn and quartered for his involvement in the gunpowder plot, it was said that for many years, Sir Everard Digby's ghost would walk back into St Andrew's Church once a year. The same used to be said of North Luffenham Hall, which used to be the Digby family pile, but that was pulled down and replaced with a primary school. Then the second ghost in the St Andrew's churchyard is said to be of a witch. And let me guess, this witch wasn't one who just lived a happy life with her husband and died of natural causes? Alas, not. This witch was said to have lived in the 17th century, exact time indeterminate, but the idea is that she was caught and locked up either in the crypt, which bears some pretty cool Norman paintings to this day, or above the porch. Either way, she was said to be chained up and abandoned without food or water. She was then said to have starved to death in the church, which is why her hunger hungry ghost appears in the churchyard, touching her mouth 
silently imploring those who see her for food or water, all before disappearing. Okay, that's freaky and I don't like it. <laughs> also, surely the solution to this is to leave the ghost some food and drink. I mean, come on, <laughs> priests of St Andrew's Church, do the women a favour. It's been, what, 500 years? If not more. It is undoubtedly a horrible, horrible story. So, shall we shift gears and have a nice ghost story instead? I think that would be a good idea. Excellent. Well, in which case, my story for this week is called Four Eggs a Penny. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back in the days of Bad King John, there lived a man named Tom Thistledown. A poor man and an orphan since childhood, Tom made his living by foraging in the county's hedgerows and all through Rutland Forest. He lived on mushrooms and berries and roots and camped under the moon, free as a bird. That said, what Tom sought for and prized most of all was eggs, as laid by the wildfowl that lived thereabouts. Of course, Tom sought pigeons and doves for both made good eating, but most of all he prized duck eggs, whose silky yolks were worth more than any other. In fact, duck eggs were at the time a precious commodity, and Tom knew that if he could find duck eggs and bring them to Oakham Market, then he could sell each for a farthing or four eggs for a penny. With enough pennies, Tom could afford to sleep in a comfortable bed and buy himself a hot meal, a bath, and maybe even the odd mug of ale. And this he deserved, as hunting for eggs could be tough work, especially when it rained or the weather was cold. Now, Tom was, it's worth saying, a fairly lonely sort of fellow, as many poor men are wont to be. Folks don't take kindly to people who know what it's like to wake with frost in their hair, and somehow they can always tell. Thankfully, though, in time, Tom did make one friend, a man even poorer than himself, who everybody knew as Blind Joe the Beggar. Joe, who lived in Oakham, had lost his sight and two fingers fighting for King Richard's army in France. Yet, as he was old and poor and disfigured, he was not much loved by the people of the town. They resented his sleeping in doorways and other such spots that were sheltered from the worst of the weather, and chided him for begging by the wall near the town gates, even though he had little choice. Thankfully for Blind Joe, when Tom came by on market days, the pair would enjoy each other's company. 
After selling his eggs, Tom would lead Joe out of the town to the hollow halfway to Barleythorpe. There, beneath the trees, they would share such food as Tom could afford and split some drink if there was some. And Joe would sing with Tom ballads from when Joe was a boy and tell him stories round fires that Tom lit and kindled, the pair laughing long into the night. As the years went by, of course, Blind Joe became thinner and thinner, all on account of a lack of charity in Oakham. So, it became Tom's habit on his way into Oakham to market to leave one of his eggs that he'd found in a hole in the bricks by the town gate, right at the spot where Blind Joe would sit and beg for money. And sure enough, when Tom would see Joe later that day, Joe would thank him for leaving the egg, saying, Oh, without that egg, Tom, I don't think I would have made it through until evening. Well, on one such market day, at dawn, Tom went to the hollow halfway to Barleythorpe, and he laid kindling and stacked wood ready for the evening's fire. He knew he was coming to town with a huge haul for spring had come. He'd managed to find several nests, so was headed to market with two dozen eggs. This meant he was going to earn a whole silver sixpence and be able to afford an entire loaf of bread to share, and butter, and beer, and much more besides. Still, as he walked into Oakham, Tom thought to himself, you know, I'd best leave an egg for old Joe. So he did, picking one that looked particularly beautiful with a sky blue shell and speckles all down one side in a shape that looked like Orion's belt. This, of course, only left Tom with 23 eggs, which would earn him just five pence and three farthings. But he knew that such a sum could still afford him two nice chunky slices of bread and some butter and some beer to share with Joe. So, although it was less than he might have earned otherwise, he left the egg in the hole in the wall and wandered off to market. Amongst the hubbub of the stalls, Tom got down to business. Sure enough, he sold his eggs for five pence and three farthings. Only then he spied, laid in the road at the edge of Market Square, a shape face down in the mud. It was none other than Blind Joe, who was dead as a doornail. And when Tom saw him there, he dashed over and fell to his knees and wept. Well, I don't know why you're crying, said one woman passing by. He could lie in the dirt for all I care. I lent him a penny once and he never paid me back. I suppose that's just the way it is with some people. Well, appalled at this, Tom paid the woman back the penny she had given to Joe out of the coins in his pocket. Then he spared two more one to rest on each of Joe's dead eyelids. These would mean Joe could pay St. Peter to enter the gates of heaven, although before that could happen, Tom realised his friend's corpse would need to have a Christian burial. Quick as he could, off Tom went to the coffin maker, and there he bought a coffin for Joe, which cost him a whole penny and a half, the price of six eggs. Desperate now, for almost all of his money was spent, Tom sat outside the coffin maker's shop with Joe's body in its box. He was weeping again, in a state of despair, as he could not for the life of him think how to get the coffin to the churchyard without spending the last of his earnings. Only then, thankfully, a farmer was passing by with his horse and cart, and he spied Tom weeping beside the coffin. "'Who's died then, son?' the farmer asked. Oh, only blind Joe the beggar, Tom replied. I'm trying to get him to the churchyard, only I can't afford to pay anyone to carry him. 
Oh, I knew Blind Joe, said the farmer. He told me any number of wonderful stories over the years. He made me laugh and made me cry. Tales of King Richard and France, of love and ghosts and adventure. You know, he was a hero too once. So then, come on and help me lift him into my cart and I'll take you both to the alderman. So off Tom and the farmer went, chuckling away about Joe and his stories. Only, unfortunately, once the farmer had dropped Tom off at All Saints Church, helping him with the coffin before driving his horse and cart away, Tom learned that the alderman was not quite so jolly. Well, we can bury him, said the alderman, sucking his teeth. Only, won't be cheap. The priest told Tom that to bury Blind Joe, he would need to donate two pennies, plus pay his last farthing, to the gravedigger. So it was that, with a heavy heart, Tom parted with his last few coins. Then he watched on as evening turned to night, and the gravedigger made a space for Joe, six feet under, yes, but way off in the darkest, loneliest corner of the churchyard. The priest said his holy words, and as blind Joe's coffin disappeared underneath the earth, Tom thought to himself that, although the view wasn't as nice as he would have liked, Joe couldn't see to know. Besides, it was at least holy ground, and he couldn't afford to pay for better anyway. All this meant that when Tom Thistledown left Oakham that night, he did so with less than he'd come with. Less his eggs, of course, but less to a friend, and Blind Joe's company was worth more to Tom than all the pennies he might ever hope to earn. Not thinking too much about it, Tom let his feet lead the way, and soon enough he found himself approaching the hollow halfway to Barleythorpe. Only as he did, anger bloomed up inside him, because he saw that someone had lit the fire he'd laid, and the logs he'd stacked were crackling away, throwing orange light and dancing shadows all about the hollow. Tom dashed forward, wanting to see the scoundrel who'd lit his fire and stolen his spot. Only when he did, he saw, laid about the fire, two mugs of ale, a full loaf of bread, butter, and 24 eggs. Tom fell to his knees and inspected the eggs one by one, eventually noticing that one of them was particularly beautiful, with a sky-blue shell and speckles all down one side in a shape that looked like Orion's belt. Well, nobody lives forever, and sure as eggs is eggs, you won't find a gravestone in All Saints Church marked with the name Tom Thistledown. Yet, for many years down in that hollow, it was known that Tom would sit around the fire on nights after market days and feast and dance and laugh. People thought him mad, for as they passed, it seemed he was talking to no one. But Tom knew, as you do now, that he was hardly alone just like he knew that the songs he sang, though from a long time ago, were ballads and always duets. Oh, Martin, that was lovely. And it's really made me want eggs. <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> oh, but I mean, it was a very sweet story, but it also highlights quite how difficult it was and actually remains to get a decent burial mm. if you really didn't have much money. No, that's very true. I think that's why the story endures, because it is a really old folktale from Rutland. So it's a traditional story. 
who knows if any of it actually happened, but I think it's interesting who's suggested to be a good and kindly person in that tale and who's mm. suggested to be miserly and difficult. Yes, absolutely. And and the idea is that you will be rewarded if you stick to your friendship, even after death, and do right by your friend yeah. and give up all of your money to help them. So the moral underpinning is very cute. But I also think it's interesting that we can see in that story a number of parallels that are very alive today. You know, homelessness for veterans has been in the news throughout the winter, for example. It's not just in this country, in Western Europe, in the United States of America. It happens all over the world. And with freezing temperatures, it's a real problem. Yeah, genuine and terrible problem. And so, of course, it's good if people can be charitable and can give. But of course, people are very often uh, inclined to look at people who are homeless as if it's their fault. And not necessarily see that actually they're a veteran, they're somebody who's fought for their country. And yeah. actually they told some great stories. Definitely. And they yeah. tend not to, to see the personality. But when you dig into it, actually the people in the community knew Blind Joe and they yes. had enjoyed his company yeah. and appreciated what he'd done to lose his eyes. Yeah, I thought it was interesting about this farmer character who pops in and helps at one point. A noble farmer is a good thing to encounter in a story, I think. More often than not, male farmers are up to dodgy business business in folk tales. Thomas Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> but this one is actually helpful uh, along the short journey that uh, Tom and Joe go on together. Tom a couple of pence though. Yeah, he <laughs> could, he could, could have said, look, I got some profits from my parsnips, so yeah, I can share them with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Should we talk correspondence? Yes, please. Okay, well, first things first, we have a new review. Praise be, that's two weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can keep this rolling, everyone. So this one is from Goose Gimlet on I iTunes, who writes, Five Star Listen, this podcast was recommended to me by a friend and not at all my usual square fare. Well, I didn't think so anyway. It's been brilliant and so atmospheric. The Christmas shows and Halloween stories were amazing. I know a little bit about classic myth and legends, but nothing at all about British. It's been an education. Great to listen to Eleanor and Martin. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Goose Gimlet. That's a great name. And we're sure your other favourite podcasts are anything but square. (laughs) Moreover, your review has tipped the balance and moved us back up to a 4.9 out of 5 star rating on iTunes. So thank you very much indeed. Yes, thank you very much. And to everybody else who has reviewed the Three Ravens podcast, thank you. And if you haven't so far, please do, whether it's on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, where if you write a review, we will read it out or on any other favoured podcast catcher drop some stars let us know what you think and as ever please tell your friends yes please gronk from the rooftops everyone we had over six thousand individual people listening to the podcast during december if we can push through seven thousand a month before the end of the series that would be absolutely amazing yep tell your friends your parents people working in businesses you frequent bus drivers train drivers salty sea captains anyone you meet tell them to listen to the three ravens podcast and thank you to everyone who's been doing just that and otherwise contacting us by email on three ravens podcast at gmail.com and via social media on that thank you to jason g who is in touch to say he just discovered the podcast and is binge listening to past episodes when you catch up with this one jason Hello. Thanks also to Scott, who wrote, I've just listened to the Essex episode and I grew up in Pitsy and Pitsy Mount, where St. Michael's Church once stood, was a great place to hang out when we were kids. I'm 49 and have always known the church to be derelict until it was demolished a few years back, leaving the tower, which was retired to host a telephone mast. (laughs) He also sent a picture and the following... 
This grave, which is situated right in front of the tower, is what we used to call the witch's grave. And the picture on the grave has this inscription. Here lies a weak and sinful worm, the vilest of her race, saved through God's electing love, his free and sovereign grace. Wow, that is harsh. Yeah, and the grave belongs to Anne Freeman, a local woman believed to be a witch who some said was hanged nearby, with her ghost haunting the church and its surrounding grounds. Crikey. Crikey indeed. Although the dates mean that Anne could not have been hanged, or at least not legally. And although we know she was a servant who never married or had any children, we literally know nothing else about Ooh, her. a mystery. So super interesting and thanks Scott. May the ghost of Anne Freeman leave you well alone. Oh, most definitely. We also had a lovely message on Instagram from Hedging Remedies who said, I am just listening to the Poppet episode and was reminded of the wooden figures that were found buried under Colton Hill in Edinburgh. They are in the National Museum of Scotland but are one of those many hidden treasures of the museum. No one really knows what they were used for or meant to be for but that just makes them more mysterious. I've popped a video up about them on the blog for this week. It's absolutely fascinating and thank you so much Hedging Remedies for getting in touch. Likewise, thank you to everyone who had such nice things to say about that episode not least the pictures of the Hitler pincushion we put on social media. <laughs> yes. And in terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, special thank yous to Sabrina, Tony, Ruth, Renee, David, Patty, Eric and Kurt on Facebook, Disabled Tales, Nigel, Yorkie Viv, Old Bony School Antiques and What the Folk on Instagram and Paco, Joseph, Colin, Lawrence and the Paranormal Reason podcast on Twitter. As ever, please do join in in the festival of Gronkery with the rest of the Three Ravens community on social media via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens podcast and X at Three Ravens pod. And please join the Three Ravens podcast group on Facebook. Yes, yes. And of course, you can always email us at Three Ravens podcast at gmail.com. And do keep those stories for our thousand word flash fiction competition coming and your general listener story tidbits as well as general feedback. We love it we all. absolutely do. And where will we be wandering to next week, Eleanor? We're headed to Herefordshire, a land of mermaids, dragons, black dogs and more. But before then, on Thursday, we have a brand new Dying Arts bonus episode all about fan making. Really looking forward to that. I shall be on the fainting couch, wafting myself in anticipation. Glad to hear it. (laughs) In the meantime, though, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to the Leicestershire Guild of Storytellers book, Leicestershire and Rutland Folktales, the Hellebore Guide to Occult Britain, and Roy Palmer's book, Folklore of Leicestershire and Rutland, all of which were very helpful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaughks. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men With a down, derry, 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 down, down Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.